Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Bruce Friedrich, the founder and president of the Good Food Institute, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to a reimagining of meat production and consumption in our society. In this role, he's a leading voice for food innovation in the name of addressing climate change, reducing the risks of disease, eliminating animal suffering, and ultimately meeting rising global demand. I'm grateful to speak with him about the case for a meatless future, progress on realizing it, and how he came to dedicate so much of his time and talents to these issues. Bruce, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. I am delighted to be here, Sean. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with how you came to these issues. You adopted a vegan diet in the late 1980s after reading a book called The Diet for a Small Planet. What in the book inspired you? And how did you think about your early mission as an activist, including as a PD employee, to get people to stop killing, eating, and wearing animals? Uh, that is a super big question. Um, I'll, st- I'll start with The uh, Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Morlepay. Um And basically, the book makes the point that other animals have to eat. Um, So if we want to eat a chicken, um, according to the World Resources Institute, we need to feed that chicken nine calories of soy or wheat or corn or whatever goes into the chicken feed. Uh, For cattle, it's 40 calories in to get one calorie back out. So um, at that point, I was... um, running an organization on my campus uh, called Poverty Action Now. Uh, we were organizing fast to raise money for Oxfam International. We were volunteering in a in the local soup kitchen. Um, and just the idea that um, something required eight times, nine times the calories of something else. Um, and the point that, that Francis Morlepay makes in Diet for a Small Planet is that in a global marketplace, there is a direct relationship between um, things like feeding crops to animals so that we can eat animals and global starvation. So more recent numbers um, that have really, I think, put this into stark relief. Um, a little over a decade ago, globally, we were feeding about 750 million metric tons of corn and wheat uh, to chickens and pigs and other farm animals. Um, Ten years later, it was north of a billion metric tons. Um, so the war in Ukraine has displaced 50 million metric tons of, of wheat and famine is on the front pages of newspapers around the world. Um, in the meantime, globally, we are feeding 20 times that amount um, of cereals to farm animals, as well as another 270 million metric tons of soy. Um, so basically, this just underlines what an incredibly 
inefficient way this is of making meat. Um, so I started the Good Food Institute about seven years ago, um, and the focus was essentially how do we feed uh, north of 10 billion people by 2050 uh, without burning the planet to a crisp? Uh, because the the climate impact of all that inefficiency is also really quite significant. I mentioned earlier, Bruce, that your early activism expressed itself in your work with PETA and other other organizations. But as you alluded, you've in recent years come to orient your efforts to the goal of food innovation. What led to this transformation? How did you come to see innovation and progress as the key means to your social ends? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing I did out of college was ran a homeless shelter um, and the largest soup kitchen um, in Washington, D.C. I did that for about six years um, and it was diet for a small uh, planet, as well as um, writing my honors thesis in college on resource economics um, and structural adjustment programs that really put um, sort of global economic commodities markets uh, firmly into my mind. Um, and then it was looking at um, per capita meat consumption, even in the North America, uh, the five highest years for per capita meat consumption are the most recent five. Um, if you look globally, um, there have been 11 peer review projections about how much meat we're going to need in 2050. Um, the most conservative number is 61% more. Um, one of those 11 peer review articles says more than three times as much meat. Um, in 2050, you look at something like China, and I think it's gone up 600% um, in the last 50 years in terms of uh, meat consumption in China. Um, so looking at what is something that can allow us to meet that demand without the external costs. Um, and what we think, uh, you know, you look at something like, uh, and we think that that alternative proteins analogizes to renewable energy and electric vehicles. Um, so with renewable energy, there's a recognition that globally we're going to produce and consume more and more and more energy um, through 2050 and beyond. Just that's what economic development looks like um, with electric vehicles. There's a recognition um, that we are going to produce more cars and people are going to drive more miles um, with alternative proteins that analogizes really quite nicely. And. Um, obviously, we want to make walkable cities um, as one of the responses um, to vehicular climate uh, emissions, and we want to make more fuel, more energy efficient buildings and sort of all of that. Uh, but at the end of the day, the real winning strategy is let's make energy without the climate impact. Let's make cars without the climate impact. Um, and here, just to uh, beg to add a little bit of nuance to your introduction, um, it's not about a meatless future. Um, it's about, you know, so like renewable energy is not, you know, is energy and electric vehicles are vehicles. Um, if somebody is eating something um, and it gives them the precise experience of meat, um, even if it's made from plants, it's still meat. Um, and even if it's um, cultivated meat, which is actual animal meat, uh, but you take a small sample of cells from an animal and you grow those cells in essentially a factory. Um, so you cultivate the cells directly. That's still meat. Uh, but it requires about a tenth the land um, or a twentieth the land for plant-based meat relative to beef. It costs, causes 90% less, fewer direct emissions, um, has a lot of other uh, benefits as well. Um, and from the consumer standpoint, because it's so much more efficient, 
we should be able to create meat from plants and cultivate meat from cells that actually cost less. So you're giving consumers everything that they like about meat, uh, taste, price, convenience, everything else, uh, but at a lower cost. This is the same concept as renewable energy. It's the same concept um, as electric vehicles. Great answer. And thank you for the correction in my terminology. I, I just want to follow up on the point about projections for growing meat consumption in the coming decades. What is ultimately driving that? Is it costs, tastes, the power of social norms, population growth, some combination of above? Help paint a picture of what's behind the growing demand for meat all over the world. Yeah, I mean, um, it appears to be the case that fairly inexorably, populations that become more affluent eat more meat. Um, so if you look at all of these 11 peer review projections, um, they basically track with um, economic growth. Um, so China has, you know, 600 percented um, its meat consumption um, as it has economically developed and, and, you know, moved from being a developing economy to a developed economy or, or pretty close. Um, and there just is this inexorable relationship where um, up to a point, um, economic growth is associated with increased per capita meat consumption. Um, so as we grow to 10 billion people um, and pretty much all of the populations across those 10 billion people are eating more meat per capita, uh, you have both individuals eating more meat um, and a lot more people. Um, and what that ends up meaning is, is a lot more consumption of energy, a lot more miles driven um, and a lot more meat consumed. Uh, but just like we can transition to renewable energy and electric vehicles, we can also make that meat in a way that doesn't have nearly the same level of external costs. Um, and it also ends up being really great for the economy. So the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office uh, did a report. They commissioned McKinsey um, and they did a report and they said by 2050, the global economy um, could add $1.1 trillion in value just from the alternative proteins market. Um, so alternative proteins could add $1.1 trillion to the global economy, create 9.8 million new jobs. Um, and this is uh, this economic growth um, and these jobs will accrue to really the governments that prioritize these industries. So um, just like governments incentivize um, and help their traditional agricultural industries, um, governments can also do the same thing with with alternative proteins. And and interestingly, Canada is really leading on this, which is uh, which is pretty exciting. Bruce, we'll come to some of these issues concerning the science and the progress and even the role for public policy in a minute. But if it's OK with you, I just want to return to your personal story for one more question. As I understand, you converted to Catholicism while working as a in the shelter as a young man. How has your faith influenced your work on these issues? Um, that, that is, a, you did do your research, Sean. Uh, that is not a question that I get a lot, but um, my faith is integrally linked to every aspect of how I have lived my life for all of my life. Um, so taking very, very seriously the idea that everybody on the planet is your neighbor. Um, so when you think about something like 
hundreds of millions of people. Um, I think the the latest statistic we were we were down to I think maybe 650 million people living in dire poverty. Um, COVID tacked another 100 million people um, onto that statistic. Um, so you think about and, and COVID also set back um, global poverty eradication efforts by like a decade. Um, so for me, the idea of taking my faith seriously isn't isn't about evangelizing anyone, uh, but it is about leading a life that's focused on service and making the world better. Um, so with you know, hundreds of millions of people living in dire poverty, um, the earth being on loan to us um, as a human species um, and despoilage uh, being, I think, not just unethical, but um, a violation of, of religious principles, whether that's me, Catholic, Christian, um, but it's also a violation of, of Islamic principles and Jewish principles and Hindu principles. Um, so there's a lot that's, that's wrong with the way that we produce food today. Um, and this is an area where I think we can make a massive positive difference um, in terms of global poverty, um, in terms of environmental sustainability, in terms of global health. Um, and it's my faith that has, has caused me to want to dedicate my vocational life uh, to trying to you know make the world better, making the earth a more habitable planet. That's certainly a compelling vision. If I can slip in one follow-up, how has it influenced the way you think about our society's treatment of animals? There's, a, I think, a pretty compelling line of thinking in Christian social thought that there's something incompatible with the way our society treats animals and the story of Genesis, for instance. Is that something that resonates with you and the work that, that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I worked full time in animal protection for, um, gosh, well north of a decade. Um, and the reason for that, I read a book uh, called Christianity and the Rights of Animals by an Anglican theologian, um, also an Anglican priest, a guy named um, Andrew Lindsay, who teaches at Oxford, teaches religious religion at Oxford. Um, and his argument was basically that other animals um, are made of flesh and blood and bone, just like human beings are. Um, they share with us the exact same five physiological senses. Um, and that what's what happens to them on especially industrial animal farms um, is really, you know, God designs them to lead their lives and they're denied all those things. Um, God designed them with a capacity to feel pain um, and the level of pain that's inflicted on them is really um, quite extreme. So especially for people who are concerned about animal protection, um, right now it's tens of billions of animals um, in industrial farms. Um, by 2050, it's going to be double that number of you know individuals, all of whom are beloved by God. Um, and uh, alternative proteins in the same way that it can slash um, external costs, drug use, and everything else. It also just removes animals from industrialized systems. Um, and it also frees up resources such that um, folks who are treating animals well um, don't have the land pressures and the economic pressures to confine animals in cages for their entire lives or you know, treat them as, uh, as sort of inanimate uh, units in the economy. Um, folks who are taking seriously um, environmental sustainability, regenerative ranchers, uh, who generally are also taking animal welfare into account, um, those folks end up with less pressure um, toward lowest common denominator. So it ends up being really sort of win-win all around. You've written and argued elsewhere 
that progress on these issues requires more than just public education. It depends on delivering affordable quality alternatives to consumers. Is the point that for most of us, self-interest trumps values? Or is it that most people want to express their values and their consumption patterns, but that it can be costly and complicated to do so? What's the Good Food Institute's theory of change? What is clearly true um, is that the most important things when somebody is when somebody is deciding what to eat um, globally across human populations, uh, people ask, "Is it delicious and is it affordable?" Um, and if something is not palatable, if something doesn't taste really good, um, and if it's outside the reach of economic affordability, um, the vast majority of people are not going to buy and eat it. Um, so I think ethics figure in, um, but at the end of the day, the way that something breaks out of niche um, is it's affordable um, and delicious. And you know, Bill Gates refers to this in the context of renewable energy and electric vehicles as the green premium. Um, he says the vast majority of people are just too busy um, to spend a lot of time incorporating climate change into their driving, into their purchasing decisions, whether that's energy or cars or anything else. Um, so we need to figure out ways to take the benefits of lower climate emissions and turn them to economic advantage. Um, that works super well with plant-based and, and cultivated meat. The alternative ways of making meat um, are so much more efficient that as they scale up, um, they should also be cost competitive. So you end up with something um, that competes in terms of price, competes in terms of taste. Um, and that's the, the point at which education becomes really, really powerful and helpful. Um, but, uh, but education before you have something that people are enthusiastic to choose instead, uh, still valuable. You know, similarly, like lots of people will ride bikes and walk um, rather than driving. Uh, but most people won't. Um, and so if you really want to shift people off of fossil fuels, you need renewable energy. If you really want to shift people off of gas-powered cars, you need electric vehicles. Um, education is great up to a point, um, but it's particularly impactful um, if you have something that people can choose without significant sacrifice. Can we talk a bit about the most promising sources of plant-based alternatives. What are some of their benefits for individuals in a society as a whole? Yeah, I mean, the economic benefit, especially for a country like Canada, um, I think is uh, is critically important. So jobs in the heartland, uh, you know, jobs in the prairies, there's uh, an outfit called Protein Industries Canada uh, that has gotten, I think, north of $350 million in, in government funding. Um, and the idea is that Canada uh, recognizes that things like chickpeas and yellow peas and canola, um, these can be a significant input um, for farmers, um, a lot of revenue there, and then also uh, building factories, a lot of manufacturing capacity, especially in the prairies, but also um, across Canada. Uh, similarly, Canada has world-class universities that can be doing um, science in this space. So uh, my organization, the Good Food Institute, has funded um, research at the University of Toronto, the University of Manitoba, um, at Guelph, um, and uh, world-class scientific institutions. So those are some of the advantages. 
Um, and then there are also really huge global health advantages. Um, alternative proteins don't require um, antibiotics. Um, right now, more than 70% of antibiotics that are produced by, by the pharmaceutical industry are fed to farm animals. Um, it's creating antibiotic resistance that the UK government has said is a more certain risk to humanity than climate change, um, killing about 1.3 million people a year right now, um, expected to be killing north of 10 million people per year by 2050. Um, and a big contributor to antibiotic resistance is the fact that all of these medically relevant antibiotics are being fed to chickens and pigs and cattle. Um, not because the animals are sick, but to cause them to grow more quickly um, or keep them alive in, in conditions that are pretty squalid. Um, another huge global health advantage um, has to do with pandemic risk. Um, so the International Livestock Research Institute um, and the UN Environment Program uh, pulled together 13 of the leading zoonotic disease specialists in the world. Uh, they released a report in July 2020 uh, called Preventing the Next Pandemic. They listed the seven most likely causes of the next pandemic. Uh, the first one is going from tens of billions of animals to double that. Uh, the first one is increased meat consumption and every single animal is a potential vector uh, for the next COVID 2023 or COVID 2027 or whatever. Um, and then the second one is industrial animal farming, uh, both because we are creating genetic clone animals um, and then we're putting them into those squalid conditions that are basically uh, disease breeding factories. So um, in addition to requiring far less land, um, in addition to causing far less direct emissions, in addition to massive economic benefits, um, you also, um, with alternative proteins, take the likelihood of meat leading to antibiotic resistance from huge to zero, um, and also take the likelihood of, of meat um, causing the next pandemic, um, I mean, you literally eliminate two of what scientists say are the top seven most likely causes, you know, literally just go away um, with alternative proteins. So there are a lot of global health benefits in addition to environmental and, and animal welfare benefits to shifting in this direction. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. At this stage, what are the main impediments to scalability? Is it government policy, consumer knowledge and habits, or is it a technology problem? Um, it's definitely a technology problem. Um, I mean, the, the reality is that the plant-based products um, largely don't taste good enough yet. Um, and they, well, they all, they largely don't taste good enough and they all cost too much. Uh, and on the cultivated meat side, I mean, we're, you know, we're really pre-market. You can buy uh, cultivated meat in Singapore, um, but that's the only place in the, in the world um, at the moment. 
Um, so it's a little bit like, um, you know, what's the problem with um, renewable energy scale or what's the problem of electric vehicles scale, scale maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, so on plant, I mean, it, the hypothesis around plant-based meat is that meat is made up of lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. That's literally 100% of what meat is. Uh, plants also have lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. Um, so if you go from something that requires nine to 40 times uh, the inputs of something else to something that just requires the 1x relative to the 9 to 40x um, and scale it up, it should be able to cost less. Um, but we do have you know, <laughs> millions of years of animals being animals and figuring out how to replicate the precise uh, taste, texture, everything else is hard. Um, and then going from, you know, vanishingly little market penetration to significant market penetration. Um, also, um, that, that will cost, that will allow the cost to plummet, um, but it's going to take a little bit of time. So uh, GFI is fundamentally um, a scientific research think tank. Um, we have about 185 full-time staff around the world. Um, we operate in in six countries, so in the U.S. as well as uh, India, Israel, Brazil, Asia Pacific, out of Singapore, um, and Europe, out of both Brussels and London. Um, and it's a scientific endeavor, so we're doing lots of scientific community building to let tissue engineers and plant biologists and mechanical engineers and biotech scientists um, let fake folks know that um, this is a really great vocational pursuit. Um, that will allow them to do a ton of good in the world. Um, and then our global battle cry, uh, further to your government's question, our, our global battle cry is that other governments should be following Canada's lead, um, recognizing the value to their economies um, of alternative proteins um, and funding the science and incentivizing private sector activity. Um, and then the third leg of our uh, programmatic stool is corporate engagement. Um, we work with everything with entrepreneurs who don't even know what startup they want to start yet uh, to help them figure that out. Um, we have both a scientific community um, and an industry corporate focused community. Uh, we work with investors and then we also work with the really big food and meat companies. So um, we work with JBS, the largest meat company in the world, uh, Tyson, Cargill, ADM, Nestle. Uh, we see all of them as, as part of the solution. Um, and so working with them, um, both because they, you know, they know what consumers want from meat. They have massive distribution chains. Um, and their overall business thesis does not require that meat be made, uh, the way that it's made now. Um, they want to sell high quality protein as profitably as possible. Um, our pitch to them is this will be even more profitable. Um, and you should lean in and be a part of, uh, be a part of this shift. You co-authored an op-ed for the CNN site in September 2021, in which you argued that the world cannot meet its climate goals without scaling these alternatives to traditional meat. Do you want to elaborate on your arguments, Bruce? What's the link between meat alternatives and our climate goals? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is um, a fascinating, and it's really more an observation than an argument. Uh, there is a scientific consensus. The uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has repeatedly said that if we don't decrease the amount of meat that people are consumed, consuming, industrial animal meat that people are consuming, 
Um, the Paris Climate Goals, the ambitious one is keep climate change below 1.5 degrees relative to pre-industrial levels. The less, you know, the backup plan is 2.0. Um, and the scientific consensus is that we are not going to meet that unless industrial animal product consumption goes down. Um, nobody has a theory for how that happens um, other than alternative proteins, unless we think that population level dietary change is possible. Um, our hypothesis is that even in the US, where people are more aware of these issues than anybody else in the history of the world, um, the five most recent years are the five highest years, not just for overall meat consumption, but even for per capita meat consumption. Um, so education is important, uh, but we also need to give people what they like um, about meat without those external costs. So um, plant-based meat requires a 20th of the land, which also has sequestration benefits um, and also benefits for regenerative ranchers and smallholder farms um, and causes 90% less direct emissions. Um, even for chicken and pork, both the land use needs and the cuts in direct emissions are significant um, as you shift to alternative proteins. So um, it's not really a hard connect the dots to say um, consumption needs to go down or cl climate goals are out of reach. Um, and alternative proteins is the one thing that seems likely to work. Um, so then our pitch is to governments, as you are funding renewable energy, um, as you are funding um, a shift toward electrification of everything, including vehicles, um, alternative proteins, both research and development um, at universities, as well as private sector incentives, uh, the sorts of things that in the United States were in the big climate bill that we passed last year. Uh, we need those sorts of incentives for alternative proteins as well. Yeah, well said. I just say in parentheses for listeners that they ought to read Bruce's article. It struck me that there's so much policy conversation in Canada these days about the need for an energy transition, but not a kind of proportionate conversation about the need for transitions with respect to meat consumption. But if you read the data in Bruce's article, you're led to the inevitable conclusion that we need the same level of urgency and ambition if we're ultimately, in other words, I suppose if we only do a transition on one side, but not the other, it means we'll remain distant from our ultimate climate goals. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, people like, um, what the science indicates is that of direct emissions, about 20% of direct emissions are directly attributable to animal agriculture. Um, that is as high as all forms of transportation combined. Um, so that is as high as air travel, every truck, every car on the face of the planet. And animal agriculture causes just as much emissions as all of that. Um, what that means is that a shift to an, uh, away from animal agriculture toward alternative proteins is a way bigger piece um, of the climate mitigation solution, certainly, than electric cars. Um, and parallels the sh the renewable energy shift, uh, but it has some pretty big tractability advantages. Um, renewable energy, there's you know permitting for renewable energy pro projects are really hard because renewable energy requires ten times the land relative to fossil fuels. Um, the shift to electric vehicles requires you know it requires um, cobalt from the Congo, lithium from Uyghur areas of China, nickel from Ukraine. Um, we have sort of the opposite of those issues. There are no 
hard to find ingredients um, and land use needs are less rather than more. Um, so this has this is a huge opportunity um, to help us meet climate object climate objectives and and governments and and the climate community writ large should really be leaning in on it. Throughout this conversation, Bruce, you've made compelling and persuasive utilitarian arguments in favor of moving this direction. But I've I've sensed that you've to a certain extent subordinated more values based arguments. May I ask why? What are the limits, in your view, of normative appeals? Well, we're certainly not averse to, to normative appeals, but at the end of the day, what really needs to happen? Um, so, what what worked for renewable energy and electric vehicles um, was government support that lifted the entire sectors. Um, so, if you read the history of how solar um, has shot down the cost curve way quicker than anybody expected. Um, it was basically um, innovation in the U.S., innovation in Germany, um, innovation in Japan, innovation in China. Um, there's a similar story to be told about something like um, EV battery production for electric vehicles and electric vehicles writ large. Um, Tesla would have failed if not for government guaranteed loans. Um, so when we're thinking about what needs to happen for alternative proteins to succeed, um, what needs to happen um, is governments need to get behind the transition. Um, and governments will fund science and private sector activity um, in order to meet climate objectives, in order to prevent the next pandemic um, or keep antibiotics working uh, to some degree, maybe for biodiversity preservation. Um, absolutely. Uh, to take a, get a share of those 9.8 million jobs. Uh, and that $1.1 trillion in economic activity uh, that the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development uh, says this sector could create by 2050. Uh, Protein um, Industries Canada has said by 2035, um, we could be looking at a $250 billion industry um, and Canada could grab 20, could grab 10% of it. So for Canada, um, we're looking at $25 billion, tens of thousands of additional jobs. Um, that is the conversation that governments are interested in having. Um, so that's the conversation that we generally focus on because the we need to create a scientific ecosystem. Uh, we need industry to take this seriously. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need governments um, to support this. And the governments that do support it uh, will be the governments that that win um, and whose economies who, whose economies profit. Um, and that tends to be our framing, you know, for precisely that reason. We'll come to the role for public policy in one minute. But before we get there, let me ask you about how to manage this global transition that you're outlining. You observe in various op-eds, articles, and other commentaries that global meat demand is poised to grow markedly in the coming years, namely from the developing world. If developed countries pursue this agenda of scale, plant, and cell-based alternatives to traditional meat, how can they do it in a way that doesn't harm those in the developing world? I mean, this is a boon uh, for developing economies. So, I mean, uh, as we were talking about earlier, um, something like 650 million people in developing con economies are living in, in nutritional deficit. Um, actually, that was the pre-COVID number. Um, so now it's something like 800 million people. Um, and a big part of that um, is the inefficiency of growing crops to feed them to animals. Uh, so that people in the West can eat animals. The former um, global envoy, uh, the global envoy on food to the United Nations, 
um, he has referred to biofuels production as a human rights crime. Um, and his argument was that we're taking um, basically cropland and crops uh, that could feed human beings. We're turning it into fuel, and that is driving up the price of crops for people in developing economies who have, in many cases, nothing to eat at all. Um, if you look at the amount of crops that go into biofuels and you compare that uh, to the 1.27 billion metric tons of crops that are fed to farm animals, um, it's a small fraction. Um, at the time he made that comment, it was literally um, 10 to 1. So the amount of crops fed to farm animals was 10 times greater um, than the amount um, turned into biofuels. We live in a global economy. This was the thing you know, that you referred to, the diet for small planet argument, um, that in a global economy, if we are putting nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out or 40 calories into a cow to get one calorie back out, um, those are crops that could otherwise have been feeding people in developing economies. Um, and then the last thing to say is, is land uh, pressures, which I mentioned earlier as well. Um, you think about pastoralists in developing economies. You think about agricultural uh, needs in developing economies. Um, to the degree that developing economies are turned into basically neo-colonial states um, where massive corporations are going in and growing crops that they then ship to developed economies to be fed to farm animals, um, that makes it a lot harder for smallholder farms. It makes it a lot harder for pastoralists. Um, and the same sort of argument um, would also apply uh, to commercial fishing and subsistence fishing communities. Um, so shifting to making you know, meat and seafood um, using plants or cultivation um, is a huge boon uh, to people in developing economies, especially people who are in developing economies and, and rely on um, animal products to survive. What needs to happen at the level of public policy to realize this vision of scaling plant and cell-based alternatives to traditional meat? Is it about investing in science? Is it about de-risking private investment? What does a public policy mix look like for a country like Canada to become a global leader in the growing global market that you outlined earlier? Yeah, the Canadian government is one uh, that would be worth other governments emulating. Uh, the Canadian government, with uh, especially um, what's happening with, with protein industries, Canada, um, I think they're based out of Manitoba, uh, but uh, basically doing um, pulses, farming um, in the prairies and also manufacturing focuses. Um, in the prairies and other governments would really do well to follow Canada's lead. I um, mean, we are seeing that the U.S. is getting more and more invested. We invested. We've seen uh, multiple pieces of really promising legislation, as well as um, some great stuff from from Joe Biden on bio economy um, and uh, manufacturing focus that includes alternative proteins. We're seeing it in Europe. Uh, the countries that are really leading uh, because of food security issues are Singapore and Israel. Uh, but yes, it's it's one. Uh, we need a lot more R&D. Uh, so we need governments to be funding scientific centers and governments to be issuing calls for proposals um, in alternative proteins to their scientific institutions to incentivize people who are currently, um, you know, who are plant crop um, scientists or tissue engineers or mechanical engineers uh, to think about applying their talents to this. Um, and then, yes, we need things like guaranteed loans. Um, to help uh, get past uh, manufacturing hurdles that aren't really that uh, are not particularly uh, not particularly aligned with with the goals of venture capital in particular, 
Um, so it really is a, it's a positive story. It's not about penalizing incumbent industry. It's not about taking anything away from anyone. It's not about getting rid of any of the current sort of subsidies as they exist. Um, it's about incentivizing this other industry and in particular, uh, incentivizing R&D, um, both public sector and private sector, um, and incentivizing private sector uh, manufacturing and, and infrastructure scale up. A final question. Are you ultimately optimistic, Bruce? I'm incredibly optimistic, Sean. Um, I am incredibly optimistic. So, I mean, two and a half, three years ago, uh, this was not on the agenda of governments at all. Um, now, in the U.S., which is the biggest funder of climate science, the Office of Science and Technology Policy is is coordinating across uh, Commerce, Department of Energy, USDA, National Science Foundation, really looking at what the U.S.'s strategy is going to be here. Uh, we've seen similar movement uh, in Europe, in Brazil, in India, in Israel. Um, governments are recognizing India sees this as a as a part of the solution to malnutrition. Singapore and Israel see it as a Part of the solution to food security issues into the future. Uh, Europe is leaning in um, as this is a solution to antibiotic resistance, climate change, biodiversity loss. Um, things like the UK government recognizing the, the economic value here and then putting that economic value onto the um, agenda of other governments. Um, I think the, you know things are moving in the right direction. It's, uh, it is still going to be difficult. Um, we have never in the history of the world had a plant-based meat product uh, that competed on both the price and taste. Um, we've also obviously never had a cultivated meat product uh, that was anywhere near uh, competing on price. It competes on taste, but not price. Um, but uh, but things are trending in the right direction. I'm I'm optimistic, and I think the I think the incentive structure is really really good. Um, so when you have something that's both a climate and global health solution, um, and also has tremendous economic benefits. That feels like a, a winning combination, uh, but not self-actualizing. We are going to have to going to have to continue to push. Well, the extent to which there has been progress in recent years, a major source of that is the Good Food Institute. Bruce Friedrich, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much, Sean. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>